The reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 on pages 1174 of the Church Bibles. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 on 1174. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also, also, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. As Caroline mentioned right at the start, with New Year often comes New Year's resolutions. Um, I was quite surprised, I must admit, at how few people here uh, make New Year's resolutions. Apparently, a study said that a third of Brits make New Year's resolutions. We're obviously not a good representation um, of Britain, but that's all right. Um, so lots come out um, in the study. It said the most popular ones was uh, were to exercise more. Um, or to eat more healthily, and you get the other ones about stopping bad habits or starting good habits. Um, but apparently 20% give up after a month, um, and more than half give up after three months. So maybe we don't make them just because out of experience we know we're going to give up. So what's the point of starting in the first place, right? Um, look, I wonder if you've made uh, not just normal resolutions or general resolutions, but I wonder if you ever make more Christian-based resolutions, ones that in your Christian faith you, you would love to see happen over the course of the coming year. So maybe you've said, um, or you've found yourself previously saying, look, this year I, I just really want to read my Bible more. I'd love to spend a year reading my Bible more. Or maybe you've found yourself thinking, I'm determined this year to uh, to pray more as a Christian, to spend more time praying. Um, maybe you find yourself coming to church and you just think, look, this year I'm striving, I'm, I'm determined to get through a sermon and concentrating the whole way through. Um, look, that's a good resolution to have, and ho- hopefully you don't break that today. But let's see as we look at Ephesians chapter 2 together. Because um, over January, over the four weeks of January, what we're going to do is spend four weeks in Ephesians chapter 2, this one chapter in the New Testament, breaking it down into four chunks. Because here's the challenge, I think, or maybe the danger, I think, with New Year's resolutions. Um, Notice the recurring theme with the examples that I gave. I'm going to do this. I'm going to stop doing that. So often the danger with New Year's resolutions are that they can be down to me. It's my effort, my hard work, and so all the pressure is on me to do it. All down to me to just try a little bit harder. Whatever that might be, whether it's getting fit or whether it's trying to be a better Christian. And so my hope is that as we spend four weeks in Ephesians chapter 2... 
my hope is that actually we'll spend time lifting our eyes off ourselves and, and how I want to be better and lifting our eyes up to the God who has made us and given us life. And so through Ephesians chapter 2, we'll see all the great things that God has done for us and is doing for us and so hopefully praise him as a result of all that we see. So four weeks in Ephesians chapter 2 with four news, a new year, so four news as we look at new life, new purpose, new humanity, and new family. So this evening, we're thinking new life. We're diving into Ephesians chapter 2, which is a letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul to um, the church or a group of churches in the city of Ephesus. Um, And in chapter 2, we're coming off the back of chapter 1, where um, Paul opens his letter with almost an explosion of praise to God. An explosion of praise in verses 3 to 14 for all the blessings and benefits that the Christian receives as a result of believing in Jesus Christ. We get that explosion of praise, and then in the second half of chapter 1, we get the prayers, uh, Paul's prayer for those who are reading his letter. And in Paul's prayer, he, he longs for his readers to know the, the hope and the power that God shows. A hope and power that God shows amongst his people. And now as we get to Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul does is he almost fleshes that out and shows how God's power has been at work. And we'll see later on in the second half of chapter 2 how we see God's power at work in bringing people together. But in this section, in the first 10 verses, in the first 7 verses we're looking at this evening, we see how God's power is at work bringing us back to God himself. And so as we look at these first seven verses together this evening, we're going to see that there is good, good news in these seven verses. But here's the downside, if you like. Before we get to the good news, we need to hear the bad news first. Paul starts off with the bad news. Because he says, look, without the bad news, the good news is effectively just news. There's nothing attractive about it. And he says, look, just just as if you were walking into a doctor's surgery, you need to hear what's wrong with you in order to know what can be done to make you right. And so Paul says in these verses, look, we need to get the bad diagnosis in order to make sense and appreciate and marvel at the wonderful good news. And so first we're going to see, in the first three verses, we see a hopeless situation. Paul starts off and he says, look, there is a desperate situation for all of human be- humankind. Paul has wonderful news to share of God's grace. And yet says, look, we've got to get the bad news first and realize how bad our condition is in order for us to truly rejoice in the good news. And so in these three verses, Paul shows us how bad the situation is. And within the bad situation, shows us how hopeless we are. Three things we're going to see in these first three verses of our hopeless situation. First, he shows us that we're dead. Second, he shows us that we're enslaved. And third, he shows us that we're condemned. First then, verse 1, we get almost the headline. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
Paul says, here is the condition of every single human being who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. And yet as I read this and I look around the world and I watch TV and I look around Basingstoke, I don't see that. (laughs) I see people who are very much alive and kicking, not just literally breathing and have life, but, but quality of life. They're enjoying life. In fact, I look around and I, I see the, the beauty of the arts or the intellect of the minds or the wonder of the musicians or the athletes. And yet what Paul wants to point out here is that God doesn't primarily look to the brilliant mind or what can be done with the paintbrush or the musical instrument or the football. His primary, primary concern is with our soul. And Paul says, look, spiritually speaking, when it comes to your relationship with God, well, you're dead. And you're dead because, he says, of your transgressions and sins. These two words, they involve the things that we do that we shouldn't do and the things that we fail to do that God calls us to do. Transgressions, this word, it's the idea of a false step, of of doing what we shouldn't of, if you like, stepping on the grass when the sign clearly tells you to not step on the grass. And then sins, it's it's slightly different, related but slightly different. It's this idea of missing the mark, of falling short of the standard that's been set for us. And yet Paul says this isn't just any kind of trivial standard. It isn't some kind of general standard. It's God's standard. It's a breaking of God's standard, his law of worshipping other things rather than him, of treating others in a way that God wouldn't want us to treat them. It's a failure to love God, a failure to love others around us. And so as a result, Paul says, our spiritual state is dead. And not just dead, but he goes on, we're enslaved. Do you see how we're enslaved, how we're held captive to three different powers in these verses. Have a look at the beginning of verse 2. Paul says, we're enslaved to the ways of this world. Paul's saying that there's, there's a culture of the world around us that is against how God calls you to live, and yet its influence on us is so much that it's as if we're captive to it. I wonder what that looks like for you as you look at the world around you, the worlds that you live in, whether that's at school or at college or at work or friends, and the ways of the world that's telling you to live one way against the way that God calls you to live. Maybe it's um, the ways of the world that tell you just you do you, or uh, you be whoever you want to be. Uh, but through that, there's a message of, look, just look after number one. Don't worry about anyone else, because if you're not going to look after number one, who is going to look after number one? And so make sure you are the most important person in your life. Or the ways of the world that tell you, look, in whatever you do, whatever you end up doing, above all else, just seek happiness in everything. Seek pleasure in everything you do. And however you can get hold of happiness and pleasure, well, work hard until you get it. And don't worry about who falls by the wayside. And so whether that's in your career, or getting your hands on as much money as possible, or sex and sexual relationships, or power, or status, or success, the ways of the world tell us, get hold of that thing that will give you happiness. 
And Paul warns that we can become captive to it. It shapes the way we live our lives. But not just the ways of the world. He says that we're captive to, second half of verse 2, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Here he's speaking about the the supernatural spiritual power of Satan and, and wants to warn Christians then and warn Christians now that he is very much alive and active. In fact, he has been since the very first few chapters of the Bible tempting people all the way through history to to doubt God's word, the truth of it, to doubt the goodness of God's word, to tempt you, Paul says here, to be disobedient to God. And then he says, third, we're, we're held captive to the cravings of our sinful nature, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Here he's speaking about our whole sinful, natural self. Our human nature, which is by nature against God. The cravings and desires that mean we go after sinful pleasures. A self-centeredness that puts me at the centre of my life at the expense of anyone else. A desire for sinful sexual desires. A desire for sinful material desires. And the danger can be that I can be very happy to point this out in other people, but as soon as it's pointed at me, then I don't want to know. And yet I think that if I was really honest with myself, then I can see that I have a natural human tendency that's bent away from God and towards myself. It's why it's the, I guess, the sad reality that a parent never needs to tell their or teach their children how to be selfish. It just comes naturally. Yet we always need to teach them how to share. Paul says, here's the state. We're dead. We're enslaved. And then final one, he says, in the end of verse 3, we're condemned. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And look, as soon as I say that word wrath or wrath, we don't often like talking about it. The world doesn't like talking about an angry God who's wrathful. And so often, sadly, the church doesn't like talking about it. We'd so much more prefer to think about a God of love, right? A God who looks down at us and smiles at us. And yet, let me suggest that a God of wrath is actually a good thing. Because surely we don't want a God who looks down at the world right now and looks around the world at some of the things that are going on and and smiles at it? (laughs) Surely a God who is angry at wrongdoing, angry at evil, angry at injustice, is a good thing, right? Surely we don't want a God who looks down at the evil that goes on and is just simply indifferent to it. A God of anger is a good thing. And, but God's anger, God's wrath, it's, it's not a kind of impersonal, kind of flying off the handle, uh, an out-of-control rage at anything going on. No, it's, it's a right, measured anger at all evil and all wrongdoing. And the mistake we can make is that we think that God can either be a God of wrath or a God of love, that the two are kind of incompatible with each other. And yet in these verses, Paul is very happy to talk about a God of wrath and a God of love 
in the next door verses, verses next to each other. God is angry at wrongdoing. And that is a good thing. But then when it comes close to home, the reality is that therefore God is angry at us. We're deserving of his wrath. And before we think that this isn't talking about us, but it's just talking about other people, Paul is very clear. This is talking about everyone. Did you notice it? Verse 1, it's talking about as for you, the people that Paul is writing to in Ephesus. But it's also, verse 3, beginning of it, all of us, Paul and those who are with him. But then he includes everyone. Halfway through verse 3, he says, like the rest, it's everyone else. Hey, this isn't a great start to 2024, isn't it? Is it? You come to church for the first Sunday of 2024, probably hoping for an uplifting, encouraging message, and this is where we start. It's not nice news to hear. And believe me, it's not nice being the bearer of this bad news. There's been times over the last 10 minutes where a voice inside of my head is just saying, look, just dumb it down, just water it down, just, just stop. And I realize that, that if you're... If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, it's not nice news to hear. It's offensive, even. And if you are a Christian here, maybe you've never quite heard this, the extent to this. Maybe uh, you are a visitor to St. Mary's, you'd go to another church, and, and you've never quite heard it quite like this. And there can, I think, be a real danger in, in the wider church today that, that we water down sin. Or, or maybe just ignore it completely. We say, oh, look, look, it doesn't really matter. Oh, don't worry about it. it. It's not too serious. And yet Paul seems to think it's serious. You see the seriousness at which he talks about it? And so I put it to you that we need to hear this. It, it's not helpful to tell people that there isn't a problem. In fact, let's go further. It's not loving to tell people that there isn't a problem. It's like someone running out of a burning building. And as they run out, as they pass people, neglecting to tell the people they run past that the place is on fire. We need to hear this. And if it's not true, well, if it's not true, there is no need for God to do anything about it, is there? In fact, there is no need for Jesus. Why has he come? If there is no issue. Paul in these first three verses says we're dead, we're enslaved, we're condemned. It's a sorry situation. But Paul wants us to get the gravity of the bad situation, the bad news, in order to really appreciate the good news. Because Paul goes on to say there is a gracious intervention and there is gracious transformation. Like going into the doctor's surgery and having been given the bad news, he says, but there is good news. Something can be done about it. And our natural reaction is to go, good, what do I do? Tell me what I need to do. And the doctor says, I'm afraid there's nothing you can do. But I know someone who can do something about it. And in these verses, verses 4 to 7, I wonder if, as it was read, if you notice the, the total change in feel and emphasis in these verses. Someone wrote that in these verses, Paul plums the depths of pessimism about man and then rises to the heights of optimism about God. 
So let's look at these verses, verses 4 to 7. As as we do, uh, let's ask two questions of these verses. First, what happened? And second, why? First, then, what happened? And as we see what happened, notice that the total contrast, the total reversal of the situation we found ourselves in, in verses 1 to 3. Firstly, we were dead. But now, verse 5, we've been made alive. It is life now in total contrast, transformation to being dead in transgressions and sin. And it's not alive in the sense of just breathing, air going through our lungs, but it's life's being spiritually alive. It's knowing the favor and the blessings and the goodness of being in relationship with God. And it's life not just now, but life forever. Because not only have we been made alive, But verse 6, we were enslaved, but we've been raised up and seated in the heavenly realms. What's going on in these verses? Have a quick flick back a page to uh, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Um, Let me read just halfway through verse 19. That power, talking about God's power, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Do you notice the similarity of what's going on, what Paul says about us and what Paul says has happened to Jesus? You see, the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus Christ was killed, was dead, and yet was made alive and then raised and seated in the heavenly realms, at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over everything. And the added wonder of the gospel is that Paul says, this is offered to you too. You have been made alive if you trust in Jesus. You have been raised, and you are seated with him. You are accepted into heaven. Your place, your seat in heaven is secure if you trust in Jesus. In fact, it's so secure that, do you notice Paul talks in the past tense as if it's already happened? It's that secure. Like places reserved at a wedding feast when you're looking for your name on that place seating plan, so your seat is reserved and secure for the wedding feast that is to come. We were dead and now alive. We were enslaved but we've now left that captivity and been raised and seated in the heavenly realms. And then third thing, we were condemned, and now we're saved. Verse 5. Saved from the condemnation, saved from the wrath of God. Saved to enjoy only his grace and his love and his blessings and his favor. And you notice in verse 7 how long it lasts? To enjoy it not just now, But Paul points forward, verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Saves us so that he can spend all of eternity showering us with his blessings and favor. There's what's happened. We were dead. We're now alive. We were enslaved, but now been raised and seated in the heavenly realms. We were condemned, but now saved. But why? Why did God do this? 
How has it happened? What did we do to to deserve this or, or receive this? And here is the remarkable part. Absolutely nothing. And what makes it more remarkable, I think, is that in the culture around us, nothing comes for free, right? You've got to earn your way in life, whether it's going through school and college with exams and qualifications, whether it's through your career or any other walk of life, nothing comes for free. And so almost as we read this and we read verse 4, we'd almost expect verse 4 to say, but because of our good deeds or because of our love towards other people, or because of the way we treated the in-laws, or because of the way you helped that old lady across the road. But no, Paul says it's because of his great love and his great mercy, verse 4. Because of his grace, verse 5. Because of his kindness, verse 7. He's motivated by his love for you. It's his rich mercy that we don't get what we do deserve. It's his grace, his abounding, unmerited favour upon you, that we deserve nothing and yet received everything. And you notice Paul's emphasis that this is all God's work. It is entirely God's generous and costly gift to you. Generous, because we get so much. And yet a gift that is costly because it costs God so much in giving us his son, Jesus Christ. Because in order that we could be made alive, he was killed. In order that we could be released from our captives, he was for a time given over to Satan. In order that we could be saved from condemnation, he was condemned as he hung on that cross for you. All God's initiative, all God's generous gift, all through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for you. And so you see, if there is no bad news in verses 1 to 3, if, if there is no sin, well, there's no need for Jesus. And his death on the cross is just a tragic waste of a life, cut off in his 30s. And so let's not make the mistake of of almost making a mockery of Jesus' death on the cross by downplaying sin. No, the reality, Paul says, is that we were so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. And yet in the same breath, we are so loved that Jesus was prepared to die for you. So as we start this new year, whether you make New Year's resolutions or not, let's lift our eyes off ourselves. Let's lift them up to the God who has saved us and given us so much. And let's rejoice in the wonderful good news of all that Jesus has achieved for us. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you that there is good, good news. Thank you that off the back of the bad news that you don't leave us in our situation, but you reach down and you save us. That you make us alive, that you raise us and seat us in the heavenly realms with Christ. 
Help us this new year to lift our eyes off ourselves. Help us this new year to lift our eyes to you. And help us to rejoice in that good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, but then this is the only question we've got. So why do some people knowingly reject God? How can internal, all-knowing God enable that outcome? you happy answering that. Yeah. Um, why do some people knowingly reject God? I, I, think, um, I think it's partly... You take the first three verses of Ephesians 2, and the, especially those three... Uh, powers that we're captive to and I think just that you just see the power of those three power of those three powers, it's not very good um, but you know what I mean, don't you the ways of the world, the, the lies of the devil and our sinful natural state at work and as a, as a result of those three things at work, people go I don't want anything to do with you God and so the ways of the world say what's the point of having something to do with a, a, a different a, a God, a being, a supernatural being that says look Submit to me. Worship me. Why would you want to do that? Worship yourself. Give yourself the credit. Live life. The lies of the devil says, look, submitting to God, worshipping to God, it's not all it's cracked up to be. So, so what's the point? Live life and enjoy it. And, and our sinful natural state takes us away from God and turns us to ourselves to go, look, you be the king of your own life. You be the queen of your own life. Why, why bother worshipping or submitting to a God? So, so why do people do that? I, I just think that pull of those three powers go, uh, put enough seeds of doubt in our minds to go, why would I want to follow God? And, and I think, well, I'm sure we will all know people for whom that is true. And as we look around our town here in Basingstoke, we see that all too much, sadly. Um, and, and let me emphasize the lies of the devil and the lies of the ways of the world when actually to submit to, to follow God is the best thing for us and is life, true life, life to the full, as Jesus said when he was on this earth. Um, how can an eternal, all-knowing God enable that outcome? I think we see, um, if we go, if we go back, I guess, right to the start of the Bible, the start of creation, as God creates Adam and Eve to enjoy relationship with Him, He wants them to enjoy relationship with Him out of choice. He wants them to choose relationship with Him and enjoy it rather than be a kind of a robot who has to enjoy relationship with Him. And, and so gives Adam and Eve the ability to choose to enjoy that relationship. But obviously, if we have the freedom to choose to enjoy that relationship, we have the ability to choose not to enjoy that relationship. And so we see, as I mentioned, the power of the devil back in Genesis chapter 3, telling Adam and Eve it's not worth it, putting seeds of doubt in their mind to go, God really said that? Is that true? Is it good? And so they go, maybe in a relationship with God isn't the best way. And, and so I just think... God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet in his power and knowledge, he wants us to want to enjoy relationship with him rather than just be forced into relationship with him because that is no proper relationship, is it? And so, therefore, um, as we get the choice to enjoy relationship with him, we also get the choice to ignore relationship with him, which is what we see in the world around us all too much. Thank you. you want to no, add I think that's that? really, really helpful. Thank you very much.